and welcome to another episode of Off The Record, the Daily Record's weekly podcast as we delve into the careers of some of the biggest names in Scottish football, past and present, looking for some of the stories behind the stories that have hit the headlines over the years. Today's guest needs no introduction to fans of Hibs and Rangers, a midfielder who was part of the golden generation of young Easter Road talent, bleached blonde highlights as well. <laughs> Before moving on to Ibrox in a £2 million deal that saw him win two league titles, two league cups and a Scottish Cup in a three-year stint that saw his combination of silk and steel in the middle of the park make him a huge favourite at Ibrox. Throwing an appearance in the 2008 UEFA Cup final and three caps for Scotland and it all adds up to a terrific playing career for today's guest, Kevin Thompson. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thanks, David. Cheers. I've heard, I've heard worse introductions, Kev. I've heard worse, aye. This is the Scotland cap bit that annoys me, to be honest. Aye, well, we'll but, get but to that. Only three, you mean? No, it's, it's probably the only the one regret I've got in my career, really, just no being, no playing enough for Scotland, really. And I should have played. It wasn't as if, like, without sounding big, he did my talent, didn't he give me the opportunities to play. I probably through injuries and bad spells and probably maybe personally bad decisions at times, you know, probably put myself out there at risk probably maybe a wee bit more injury and maybe playing through a wee bit more pain and probably potentially play and maybe scupper my chances of getting more caps. So probably one, one of the frustrations that I've got. I'm sure we'll come back down to that, Tom. But I tell you, you know, obviously this podcast, we start kind of at the beginning of your career and, and walk through. But actually, we're going to flip that a little bit because um, I noticed on your socials just the other week, you're currently trying to auction off some... The, the shirts that you've collected through your career for grassroots soccer, for kids football and all that, Thomas. So, how's that? How's that going along? How's it's great? We've they've actually unofficially sold, to be honest, Jacko. So they're um, you know what it's like. You social media. You, I just always try and think of different ways that I can help. The the, the local schools are. I'd like to think it's a two way street, but they're they're very good to us. Um, and obviously, my both boys have, have went through these schools. One in high school now, one obviously in primary school. So plus, they both started at grassroots and. Even though we have a lot of good players and a lot of pro, pro academy kids that come to our academy, Moan Academy. Um, yeah, the Kevin Thompson Academy. Aye, me, me and Jordy obviously look after a lot of the, the kind of aspiring young players in the country. And that, that goes right back to like some of the kids that literally just starting out. So I'd like to think every kid is really a grassroots kid until they become professionals. Um, and if we can help, and it was just a, a Dunmore for Cup, but it's obviously last year we managed to raise, I think it was £2,800. So we gave £900 each to the three schools that are quite close to our heart, obviously in our local community. Then I, I'd like my money back, to be honest, but I put a golf simulator in my, in my games room um, maybe five, six years ago, so I'd, I'd like a refund. And um, it then meant some of my, my strips were kind of surplus to requirements because of the space that I needed. And I just kind of thought that it would be a, a good idea for a couple of dust collectors to to, um, to hopefully go to a good home and to raise some money that I could then potentially help some more schools and, and some more grassroots clubs, uh, clubs sorry. So, so it's really because the missus was fed up with the clutter, mate? I just, listen, I'm not a great duster, to be honest, Jacko. So it's, um, it's, it's, I just, I, I, listen, I, I just want to try and help if I can. It's um, As I say, we, we get a lot of, of mums and dads that bring their kids along to the academy and they potentially take their grassroots teams and I know how much commitment and how much effort you need to try and help the next generation. So it's... Um, if we can help in any way possible, um, like, you know, a lot of the stuff that we do that we, we probably don't publicise, me and Jordy, you know, giving our time at the schools, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, we try and help the school teams and, and just any time, really, advice, you know what I mean, picking up the phone, I think, like, you know what I'm like, I'm always at the end of the phone for people and that might just be, like, 
a boys' club player moving from one boys' club to another, or the opportunity of a boys' club player maybe then get an opportunity to sign at Pro Academy. So you're always obviously at the end of the phone and trying to give up as much time as you possibly can. So I think the money, um, without having my bone advice as such, would, would hopefully help them maybe get better equipment or better and better facilities through the winter or whatever, or we egg nest, they may be trying to put towards a trip for some of these kids. So, um, well, just in case, Tom, or there's somebody listening to this that fancies it, is there anything still up for grabs? It's actually not me, I've, I've managed to sell them, oh, not really. So, they did, they did kind of go like hotcakes. Um, and it's the same, I always feel, which I, I probably shouldn't, but I always feel a bit guilty when you you never know which way to perfectly sell these type of things, you know what I mean? Like, you get the stick. Get, only people that have got deep pockets get allowed when it's an auction and then you you do a raffle and you potentially then know that somebody might win a strip that's worth a few grand for a tenner and then just go and sell it straight away and, and then make them sell money, do you know what I mean? So it's, I always feel a bit conscious that I'm, I want to try and help everybody and give everybody a fair opportunity, but I managed to sell them obviously privately just through kind of DMs really on Twitter. Uh, was, um, there, was, was there anything that you gave away that was a bit of a stinger that you thought I, I would, wouldn't have minded getting that? Well, the Tuma shoot one was, I suppose, but listen, I've got my strip jack, I've got my medal, and these, I've got things that I would never ever part with. And then there's like. That's like, Tuma shoot's cup final view for cup ah, final. And it's, it is, it's probably quite a unique strip. So it's a special one. I did have a lot of messages off of mates to say, like, why are you selling it type thing? I'm not selling it for any personal gain, really. It's it's just something that kind of close to my heart. I feel as though it, it could help, hopefully. Um, and listen, a few hundred quid here or there to, to, to hopefully maybe 10, 15, 20 boys clubs or whatever. Um, and girls clubs, some grassroots clubs, I'm saying that wrong, sorry for my terminology. Um, but oh, you'll get cancelled. Sorry? You'll get cancelled anymore of that. <laughs> I know, it's, uh, it's just the grassroots clubs, and it's, um, you know, we've got a lot of boys and girls at the academy, and I say mums and dads that spend so much time giving, giving their effort and their, their time to try and help the next generation, is that, you know, a small token of our appreciation, really, if we can help in any way, then it's, I always feel it's, it's, it's kind of worthwhile there. Well, let's, let's go back to the start then, Tom, because I wonder, I mean, obviously, since you hung up your boots, you've been really into the kind of academy stuff, helping kids, you, you, you know, enormous amount of time and effort that was into it. Now you're, you know, flogging off stuff to, to help raise more funds. Tell me, has that got anything to do with the way things started for you when you were a kid? And obviously, you had a bad experience when I think you signed a four-year deal at Coventry right at the start. And... I don't think it was a very comfortable experience for you. Do you think there's a legacy bit there where you're desperate to try and do it the right way, raise kids the right way? Is that is that part of it, Donald, from your own experiences? I think so. I think if anyone knows the way I coach, Jack, well, I'm, I'm big on discipline, really, and I'm, I'm big on kids behaving and being humble and respectful. And listen, they all have different lives and you know different problems within within their lives. But I just try and be like a good role model, really, that I can hopefully the way I live my life, the, the, how hard I've worked, you know what I mean? And, and I'm no any better than anyone else, but I'd like to think that when when kids come and see how we work and, and, and how we represent ourselves, it's you, you're you not just trying to make them better at football, you're trying to make them better, better kids, really. Mm-hmm. Um, giving them something that they hopefully really enjoy. It allows mum and dad to have that wee token that, listen, if you don't behave and you, you don't stick in at school and you don't respect people that are around you, you whether it be your teachers or, or other activities that you do, then you won't be going to Kevin's Academy and um, you know, me and Jordi are um, really big on, on, on discipline, really, and, and helping the kids um, not, not just get better at football, Jacko, but, but just become better kids, really. Um, yeah. and I think if, you, if you've got that installed quite early as a, as, a, as a youngster with so many different opportunities to maybe go on different paths um, and maybe getting involved in mischief or stuff that you shouldn't get involved in, then if it, mm-hmm. if it gives you a good focus, then we feel as though we're doing a good job. Um, you know, touching on the Coventry thing, I'd, 
I think it was different for Ari or Jacko because we um we never had pro academies really. So your like your Hutchie Vales and your big boys clubs were recruiting or trying to recruit the best players, similar to like what pro academies are doing. So I'll always um I know Davy's obviously got got a boy. It's Queen's Park, Davy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So we went through that journey as well, starting and when you maybe get to 10, 11, and it's different journeys for every different kid. Some come a wee bit later, some are, are well in the mix of the, the big clubs quite early doors and get a lot of provision when they're as early as young as like six, seven, eight. Whereas for us, it was always boys' clubs right through until kind of 10, 11, until you, you got that opportunity. Like I, I did to, to obviously maybe outgrew my local boys' club to go to Hutchie Vale to then play with um, some of the better players in the country and against some of the better players in the country. Um, and I just feel as though like I've got two kids that I went through a grassroots community club, which were brilliant for the Edinburgh South, um, fast-growing boys club in Scotland that I don't even know if it existed when I was a kid. Um, but the time and effort that that so many helpers and volunteers put into allowing these kids to play football, I feel as though if I've got the opportunity to try and help, then I'll, I'll do anything I can. Yeah, I know Kevin, Kevin, your your boys obviously at Hibs. In fact, our two sons played against each other a couple of weeks ago when I went off. Um, what do you what do you make of the the pro youth system. I mean, is it is a proof in the pudding in how many players finally come through, or how do you feel it? Did is it a bit antiseptic? Is, is it different from from your day when you were coming through? I think it, I think it's tough because the, the life's changed, David. Isn't it? You know what I mean? You've got like well being. You've you've got you know the kids' mental health at stake. You know, a lot of things that, that we potentially never had when we were going through, and and not having like a maybe a support background around us, a network, but these clubs are like going over and above to try and give the kids the best, best opportunity. I do think there's a lot of flaws within the system. Um, just because you represent, I'm just using Rangers as an example, you represent Rangers, it, it doesn't then mean that what's in the building is the best provision to help the kids prepare to one day become Rangers players. So the, the next part is the way the game is, grassroots naturally links into pro academies and pro academies naturally it doesn't then mean that the grassroots kid that stays at a Hutchie Vale doesn't they become the best player out of them all, yeah. but they do snap up the lion's share of the best players. So sometimes if you are a good player and you're still playing at grassroots, it can, the challenge can maybe be a wee bit easier for you and you might not quite develop at the same rate. You, you then get less nights provision training, etc., etc. You don't get the trips abroad that obviously some of the big clubs do and giving these kids all different opportunities to to go and learn and challenge themselves and, 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 and get different life experiences, really. Do you know what I mean? That might just be wee daft things like, can you handle playing in the heat and, and having to go back and get some lunch and have an afternoon nap at 12, 13 to then get yourself motivated and, and prepare yourself correctly to then go and try and perform when you're 13, 14 in the heat again in the afternoon when you're tired. And mm. all these wee things, I think, are great learning curves for, for the clubs and obviously pro academies with the budgets that they have give the kids a far greater experience in that that term than obviously what grassroots teams do. So listen, there's a can of worms really, Davey, I think. And I, I don't think there's anyone could say, I, I tried to open a debate just not that long ago, a month ago, and I, I was passionate about it. Maybe I worded it wrong on Twitter because I thought it would have got a bit more traction. But what is right and wrong? Like who's got the best model in Scotland? So if I say, flipped it to you and Jacko, who I know you love, love footy and you're passionate about, maybe not so much passionate about grassroots, but, but you will be, Davey, because obviously you've had a kid go through it. Who is the number one? Who's who's the leading one? Who do we all want to go and watch? So, so what's your answer straight away, Jacko? Uh, <laughs> I haven't. I'll be honest. Obviously, obviously, don't watch a lot of grassroots. But you look for <clears throat> who's who's winning the most. Who's and that's probably the wrong. You're going to tell me that's the wrong answer because it's not about winning trophies at that age group. It's about developing players. 
but you, but automatically my mind would say, well, you know, if Celtic are winning under 15, 16, 17s level, then they'd probably be the most interesting team to go and watch right now. But that's, 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 the flip of that, Jacko, for me would be who's producing the best players? Who's who's and that's so many variables because a player could break through it. I'm just using them as an example. I'll use me as an example. I could break through at Hibs. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I might not be good enough quite to break through at Rangers or Celtic when I was 18, 19. Do you know what I mean? I might have needed an extra opportunity to develop. So, uh, develop sorry, so I, I get that. But I always think to myself as a young coach and somebody that's passionate about developing the kids, like, who are we all wanting to watch? Who's who's the number one developer in the country? Who's who's the one that we all want to go and... So who is it for you then? I don't know, Jack. I, I, that's, what, that's why I always look far and wide to see who's doing it. And obviously you get the teams in Europe that, like a Benfica... AZ Altmar have obviously yeah. just come up with an interesting thing because they've just won the Champions League, obviously under-19s. But there's mm-hmm. so many variables in that as well, Jacko, because you could have an Ajax who maybe get beat in the semi-finals, have a team of 16-year-olds, yeah. and then AZ yeah. Al- Altmar might have a team of 18-year-olds. 18. So like, yeah. ah, there's, so, there's so many different variables in what success looks like, but I always look at Scotland because we're passionate about it, and that's why we're here, is who, who's the team, who's the academy that's producing and giving the most opportunities to kids? I, I don't know, somebody will know, but... Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that there's one that jumps out that we all want to copy what what Dundee United are doing or Dundee are doing or. They've been Hamilton for a while, surely. <laughs> well, well, Hamilton were producing a lot of young players. I think you're reading your news. He was playing when I was at Rangers, etc. But and and same again, like he maybe wouldn't have been good enough to get in front of some of the boys at Rangers, but then he gets <laughs> team experience far quicker than what they're getting. So. Yeah. I think Kevin. I think, and it's obviously the club where your son is, but I actually think that. Um, that Hibs the next couple of years might be the club that brings through, um, you know, some of these players because they're obviously their under nineteen team did really well in Europe this season. They, I think they took Borussia Dortmund all the way, didn't they, uh, in that Europa Youth League? Um, I think they lost to a last minute goal against them, something like that. Um, they got through a couple of rounds, and um, I know that they've now put out a couple of boys to loan. Um, I think uh, Big O'Connor's son, Josh O'Connor, I think, is uh, he's going out and loan to Airdrie, I think, and stuff like that. So, you know, I think that maybe maybe the, the, the wheel will turn and, you know, full circle because, you know, back in the day, it was it was Hibs that produced that, as I think I called them a golden generation in the intro, and, you know, you, you were part of that. And, um, you know, I, I think that possibly they might be the team to do that. No, I don't disagree there. Listen, my boys are both at the academy and they, and they love it. And they've obviously got their wee aspiring young dreams like a lot of, a lot of kids obviously have. But I, I, to me, and it is, I keep on using the terminology, it's a, it's a can of worms because Lee John, we'll just use Hibs as an example. Lee Johnson is going to, obviously, he's always under pressure because that's what the nature of the beast is at the top level. When you're a manager, you'll understand that. The kids then, when you use Josh as an example, Gary O'Connor's boy who's, He's obviously done really well. He's flew through academy football. He scored loads of goals. He's attracted a lot of interest. He's still scoring a lot of goals, whether it's been in the 19th Champions League or whether it's been um, playing in development games. And they played a lot of the North East teams recently, your Newcastle's, your Middlesbrough's, your Sunderland's, etc. And he's still been scoring a lot of goals. Like you mentioned, he's now going to go out in Airdrie, which is probably a nice wee touch that they've managed to get promoted. So he's now going to be going to a team in the Championship, which will obviously be an even sterner test for him. So let's hope we can come through that with flying colours. The next part is these kids need an opportunity, David. And that's yeah. what we got back under Bobby. And and my dad always flips that to say that the financial difficulty that Hibs went through on, on the previous manager who had spent obviously far more, more money than what Bobby got. And Bobby's hands were tied. He had to cut the wage bill. He had to... No choice, but he go for kid. Ah, he tried to, he had to get rid of some of the big hitters, Jacko. So then all of a sudden, us, 
us boys waiting in the wings did get opportunity. So we can, I suppose, talk blue in the face about who's right and who's wrong and, and who does this and who does that. But these kids need need opportunity. And I think the Edinburgh clubs especially, um, like if you are if you are Hibs and you're a Hibs fan or a Hearts fan, like I know they want to compete with Old Firm. I know they would love to finish second. I know they would love to win the league. I understand that. But the, the harsh reality is that wouldn't be the remit of why you fail season to season. So they're brilliant clubs. They're in a brilliant city. They have great academies with great facilities. They spend a lot of money on both academies. I think the Edinburgh clubs should be producing more players and, and giving more younger players better opportunities to... to and listen, I, I totally understand they need to be good enough. I get that. But the grey area for me is if they're 18, 19, 20 and they've never been out on loan and they're only playing development football, you've not actually gave them the best chance to showcase their talent. Well, that's where there's a big debate just now about you know the introduction of these B teams and the, the creation of a conference league at the, the bottom of the pyramid. And I think that's a good idea. We might, might come back and touch on that later. Because I think that gives young boys proper men's football. And I think there's a there's a two-year period where we're developing great players for about 17, and then they fall off a cliff between 17, 20, 21, when they should be breaking into first team. So that's a part of a, a bigger argument, Tom. But before you got your chance with Bobby, you, you had to, we kind of touched on it, endure pretty miserable time when you went down to Coventry as a young kid. When you look back in that, Tomo, and you see now what the provisions that are made, as you mentioned, mental health and all the stuff that goes into looking after kids, you were pretty badly let down through that period. That that, that must have been a scarring one for you. Uh, so I wouldn't want anyone to go through what I went through, Jacko, because it's, it's, it's unacceptable, really, but it probably has made me what I am now, and that's not me justifying it or, or, or saying that there's any... Um, Plus sides to it. Aye, aye, this, 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 it should never happen, but it, it probably did as a young lad that made me durable, do you know what I mean? Because I had to find a way um, being able to handle myself and look after myself. And listen, I'm a different person now at what, 38 mm-hmm. compared to what I was at 15, but you just never know where. And you do, you look back and I, I signed a, a massive contract. I gave up a lot of money. Um, I gave up a brilliant opportunity, no through because my talent or through really what I had to endure. Do you know what I mean? That was the reason why I left. It was if if I never had these situations when I was down there, the football I loved, the training I loved, the exposure I, I loved, I, I was highly, highly thought of off of um, Richard Money, who was the academy director at the time. Um, the, the contract actually that I got offered, I probably shouldn't have been offered it. It was it was an astronomical contract for a for a kind of 15 stroke 16 year old back in the day. Can you talk about nearly sorry about my maths, what 22, 23 years ago or something. Do you know what I mean? So it was, um, it was, it was a huge contract to give up, and I think frustration from my mum and dad because obviously I never opened up to anyone really on on what was going on. Um, I think my sister obviously used to take me to the airport, and I used to miss my flights, and I used to sit in the the, the terminal really and just last call for Mister Kevin Thompson and just sit and wait until the flight had left, and then say that I used to miss my flight. Um, just for those, just for those that don't know that aren't aware, Tom, what was it that that you didn't want to go back to. Just the boys, the boys were horrible, and, and some in specific, they, they were, um, they were like a lot at times, like a lot of verbal kind of bullying as such, and then obviously verbal becoming physical, and, um, and and the physical probably for me being um, a wee mammy's boy, and and um, and kind of needing my mammy to kind of support me, and always kind of having her there as a, a reassurance, and never knowing any different from being away from home was 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 difficult for me. Um, 
And these were older boys, these were older kids. Ah, yeah, so I was the baby in the group, which never helped either, Jack or the Blue. A lot of the boys were like, kind of like 17, 18, second years and third years. Obviously, when they start to get to obviously earning themselves some decent money and this, they get a, a longer contract, they might obviously, when they start to drive, some of the local boys will obviously stay at home. But you can imagine, obviously, these academies, they had a lot of players from Ireland, Wales, Scotland, and even obviously in England, but they obviously wouldn't just be local boys. They could be... They could be three, four, five hours away, obviously, some different place in England. So they'd have to then stay in the digs. And they just, obviously, one in specific that obviously blew up, Kenny, when I called him out on Twitter, really, was was the Kenny antagonist to to the other lads, Kenny, egging him on. He'd just, just be a wee twat, really. And then mm-hmm. I found that really difficult. I probably externally showed that I was big enough and brave enough to, to handle it. But but internally, I, I just wasn't. And I, I found that really difficult. And it was, it was fundamentally the reason why um, I done everything I possibly could to make sure that I could I got to stay back up the road with my pals and what I knew and and being back at home with my mum and dad and my sister. It wasn't the worst decision in the world, was it? Well, listen, uh, I suppose, it, and that's why I always have a good debate with my dad, Jacko, because he always goes back to like the opportunity that that, that golden generation kind of got that David mentioned, and he didn't believe that we would all get that opportunity if it wasn't for the the money setbacks and and, and Bobby Houghton to cut things back. I think that you. If you've got talent and you've got the right personality and you've got the right character, you go and make your career where you make your career. Like I, you look back on history, tells you that I played for the clubs that I played for. But I genuinely believe if I never got my opportunity at Hibs and I had to take a step back, eventually you think that your talent and the way you are would would eventually pick you on a different path and you would still go and have a good career and, and hopefully still be a good player. But um, you might then not have the reputation that you had with the clubs that you've got because you might have played for different clubs. But I do think that if you've got talent, um, and I'm not knocking the guy or the, or the woman that stands at the bar and says, oh, I was a good player when I was 13, 14, but I never made it, if you know what I mean. I do, I do think you, you you find your way if you've, if you've got talent and you've got the right personality, and that's not just what you look like technically, it's, it's what you look like, how you live your life off, off the field. And I, I flip that back, Jacko. He, he's a good friend of mine, and I'll, I'll mention him, because when I was at Rangers, I stayed next door to Liam Buchanan. Mm-hmm. Liam was a, an apprentice. Uh, I think he'd done, his pl- I think it was plumber rather than Spark, I'm sure it was Plumber, he worked with a local plumbing business, done his apprenticeship, and he was part-time at the time with Calvin Beef, and he was my next-door neighbour at the time, and by the way, his attitude was unbelievable. Mm. Unbelievable. And he went on and had a good career, played part of the Thistles, your Rafes, your, so I mean, obviously, Calvin Beef, he's just been top goalscorer, I think, 38, in the Lowland League, scoring 27, 28 goals for, for Berwick. His attitude is top, top drawer, so even like, even though he might not have played for the clubs that he wanted to play for, but he got every last ounce out of his career because of his attitude. And I feel as though, yeah. like, I would have been the same. Do you know what I mean? Even though I might have not got an opportunity to play for my boyhood club in Hibs and it might have had a different deviation and graph, if you know what I mean. But I still think I would have, I would have got to where I would have got to, if you know what I mean. And, and he's catalyst for that. I look back and I think if, if ever you wanted an attitude as a part-time player to try and aspire to continue to go and sacrifice and coming back from work and having to go and pee and rain to, to train somewhere, um, maybe an hour's drive or whatever, he was he was unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. See, when you you had your experience with those boys at Coventry, and then you've gone, you know, you've gone back up the road, you've gone to Hibs, you know, you're getting an opportunity in the first team with the likes of Bruni and Whitaker and Ryerton and O'Connor and all that. That must have been brilliant. You know, the, compar- you know, the comparison to what you had to what you then went back to enjoy. And, I always remember going to watch that Hibs team and you looked as if you were playing with a smile on your faces yeah. every single week. It must have been just such a great contrast for you, Kevin. No, I, I, the only way I can describe it, Davey, is that, that group loved football. Aye. 
we just love football. It was it was I, I, when I see young players now, and, and obviously different challenges and different setbacks, and and we had loads of setbacks. I still turned up on a Monday night, and and we Parky had me on the bench and the resies, and I got ten minutes. And it, when you phone your dad on the way home, when my dad worked down in London, and he would say, "How do you go on?" I was like, "I got ten minutes at the end." Beat Motherwell two one, or got beat three 0 off Aberdeen, whatever the whatever the game might have been. And he's like ten minutes. That's not very good. And obviously, my dad being in my opinion a great role model for me, he didn't hump and haw and tell me that I should go and chap and park his door or I should do this. Mm. The message to me was always work harder then. Mm. Work harder. Mm. Um it wasn't a, it, it wasn't all oh, let's go and chap the door or let's moan about game time or or let's let's moan about something else that everybody seems to moan about nowadays. It was work harder. Go and show yeah. him in training tomorrow. And and that's that probably was my upbringing off my dad he didn't he, he was never too precious on me making a mistake and and getting the ball away or no touching the ball enough or missing a chance or or making the wrong decision on the ball it was work harder if I come off from my shorts no particularly dirty and if it looked like I hadn't broke sweat and I didn't have a a, 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 a beady sweat on my nose or on my brow he would be like you never worked hard enough to do and that was it yeah. it's, it's probably I, it's, I think it's great advice really for, what for a anyone key lesson. what a key lesson to learn because there's too much I think these days especially People who look for excuses as why that didn't work out. There's an excuse for this. It's somebody else's fault. It's, but your dad was spot on. You know, it's down to you. You've got all the talent. You just need to put the work in. Yeah, yes, I, I, that's the one thing I would say about me and Brunies and that when we were when we were there, Davey. Your Riordans and O'Connor. And people will always think Riordan O'Connor's because they see the way they were off the pitch, and people might have an, a a a a different perception of reality. But by the way, they were brilliant trainers. Brilliant trainers, loved football. By the way, first on the training pitch, because when Gaz passed his test and bought himself his first fancy car, he obviously got paid far more money than me and Scotty and Whitties and that, because Scotty and Whitties were driving bangers. And <laughs> Gaz had the big X5, and, and him and Riordan were a, a way down east uh, to wherever we were training, Wardy, um, Grant and Gasworks, etc. because obviously everybody will know, and we're well, actually, everybody will maybe know, no, we used to turn up at Easter Road. You sometimes have to wait to like two minutes to ten. Everybody, all the first team players ready, ready to go. To then find out which park you were training, and obviously then all the cars would would rush about town, and the minibus would obviously go with the kit, and the younger players would go and kind of set up the pitches or whatever. But nine times out of ten, the Riordans and O'Connors were were sitting in the car outside waiting to go because all they wanted to do was play football. They just yeah. they wanted to put their feet to smash it in the net and to muck about, and and even like after training, etc. Like I we maybe wanted playing heady tennis, we maybe wanted going out and working on our right foot or Scotty working on his left, but. You, you, the cleaners had to kick us out of East, Easter Road near enough every day, me and Scott. Unless, listen, we were going to play pool or we were going for lunch or whatever or we were maybe meeting someday. But day to day, a lot of day days, we were we were at Easter Road to like 4.30, 5 o'clock at night. Just, and by the way, we finished training at half 12. Just mm-hmm. mucking out, probably to the disgruntlement of the cleaners and, and the maintenance people about Easter Road, not always knocking out tiles at the roofs and obviously Scotty mucking about in the baths and... <laughs> everywhere and, and just being just being kids that loved football and loved the opportunity that we, we, we that we were had been given in the life that we were living. Aye. The two thousand and four League Cup final, I think that must have been a stinger because I think you know you were expected to win that, weren't you? You know you were playing Livingston and with the talent you had, you should have won that. Aye, but I think a lot of people forget that Livingston were were through that era where they they had big hitters themselves. You know what I mean? Um, 
you know, they had like obviously your Lee Makels, your your Archie Lovells, um, Stuart Lovell, obviously, um, Big Marvin Andrews, you know what I mean, David Fernandez. Can they they had like a lot of good players yeah. as well? But I think yeah. people maybe forget that because they they probably do Livingston a wee bit of a disservice. Like, oh, it was just Livingston, we should have just turned up and beat them. And I, I didn't think that was the that certainly wasn't the attitude of us as a group because we never had that. I'm not so sure you would get to where you got to if, if that was the attitude of the group. But mm-hmm. it's probably the one. Listen, I would love to have been involved, obviously, in the 2016 Cup Final, which is obviously a special day for us high bees, but um, even though it's against an R club, that's obviously close to my heart. But um, So it's always a difficult one, but it's, I think anyone would know that if I was representing any club, I always give them all, do you know what I mean? No matter who you're playing against, even if that had to be against against Hibs or playing against Rangers. I actually never played against Hibs um, or Rangers, um, even though I was involved in the kind of run to the Cup Final. I never actually played in any of the games for any team. When I was at Dundee, both teams were in the Championship. Um, when obviously I was at Middlesbrough, etc., and I never really got an opportunity to play against um, MD team, so I was never put in that position. But it was definitely a game, Davy, that we, um, when I look back as a as a player and the team that we did have and the occasion, and the I think 38,000 Hibs fans going through beating Celtic and Rangers, obviously on the on the run to get to there, um, I, I just not an anti climax because it's the wrong thing to say about a national cup final. But but for me, it was it was the one that if I could change one thing in my career. Um, even though I mentioned the Scotland thing earlier, the Caps thing, it would be I've got my hands on that trophy as a young player for Hibs because I, I obviously missed the, the 2007 one because I'd moved to Rangers. Um, and obviously look, we, we would all love to have a, a perfect map and to be able to manipulate everything so it was perfect for us individuals. But the harsh reality is like things pop up at different times and it is the one, the, the Livingston one was the one that I would have, I had dreamt of all my life really through Skull Cup, being a Hibs fan, you know, 91 going with the, the Peebles bus through the Green Tree all the way through Hamden and then going to London Road to watch the team come back to then get that opportunity as a young player, no knowing any different really um, yeah. for, for, for just playing for Hibs and supporting the club to, to get my hands on that would have been extra special. But it's um, unfortunately we, we cannot always make things to or manipulate things to be perfect for us. So I just had to take that on the chin. But it was a, it was a solo one. I can remember being been as down as I've ever been um, in my career on the, the Sunday afterwards. And or it might be actually was it a Sunday game, maybe I think it might have been a Sunday game, the Monday afterwards or, or whatever the day it fell. Um just being so low um for for for, for quite a big hangover. Um, I don't mean a, 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 a drinking hangover, I just mean like a hangover like an emotional the, hangover. Uh, <laughs> an emotional one, I a drained one. Or I still remember like waking up on the, the, the day after and having our or strip in the bag and obviously the, the, the strips were wet and you know that smell we all know that smell of like mm. dirty boots and dirty strips and the kind of smell of, of, of kind of dirty gear after a game and, and obviously wanting to keep my strip but disappointed my first medal and disappointed and it just and I'm, it's funny as well because I know that it doesn't matter but I'm sure we beat Livingston I think 5 or 6 now 3 or 4 weeks later literally the same team at Easter Road which is which is mad um, mm. but it's it's on that day they were better than us. They took their chances, and and it is it's the it's the one that I, I look back on in my career. Um, even though listen, we can talk about UEFA Cup finals. It would be unbelievable to get a gold medal. But um, I just it was that that was the first national cup final, and obviously for your boyhood team, it was it was a it was a real disappointment. So it would be nice if I could have told my parents, my kids, that tell me that dad's rubbish that I actually won a won a cup for the Highbies. <laughs> As things progress, then Tomo, you know you've you've had such a brilliant time. You're loving your life at Hibs after the Coventry thing. You boys are all flying. Bobby Wilkinson's got you in the team. You're, you're, you know, and clearly it's you can see things mapping out in front of you. That there's going to be big careers here for for these boys. But the fun sort of goes out of it. 
just before you, you ultimately leave Hibs, I mean, almost back to a, a situation where, you know, not unlike Coventry, you, you're not looking forward to going into training. You're not, you, you feel sick in the stomach when you see John Collins, his car parked outside the training ground, stuff like that. How difficult was that, having experienced what you'd experienced together, the fun of it all, the absolute joy of playing for, for your boyhood team and all that? How, how difficult was it to, to then be back in that mental space where, actually, I'm, I'm really not enjoying this anymore? Yeah, it, it was tough. And I, I never really enjoyed football at that, that spell, Jack, to be fair. It was, you do everything you can because you're a professional. And I love the club. So, like, to train hard and to, to play hard and to, to play like you, you wanted to win every game was, was just the way we're made, really. So that, that never differed. But, like, I can remember always, like, just, you, you naturally, like, whatever your quiet space is as an individual, whether it's sitting on the sofa at night time or it's, it's in the car driving somewhere or wherever it is, and you start thinking about different scenarios, it was... It was it was one of these scenarios that you wondered why you were in it. You know what mm. I mean? Doing quite well, and then all of a sudden, like it's probably the first time in that period in maybe five or six weeks when obviously we were linked with, with a lot of clubs that I probably got quite a bit stick off the Hibs fans as well. Yeah. Um, like, and it's probably the first. Listen, I've got no doubt other Hibs fans uh, through different games or what we were bearing in mind. We never really had social media um, back then, so you That's never. Ah, you never really had anyone criticise. Well, you did have people criticising. I'm guaranteed that obviously there was loads of Hibs fans that went to the boozer after games and said Thompson was rubbish today or whatever. I, I get that, but probably like face to face, people shouting for the stand or or people maybe having a wee a wee bit of a go at you after games or whatever. Like no, in a bad way, but just probably the first time I'd heard any any real criticism coming for the stand, and, and probably rightly so because it was. I understand when when people move. Um, or, or potentially moved and linked, and then obviously I'd, I'd been on the bench a couple of times with John Collins. So in my opinion, the, the the narrative looked as though I'd was trying to force a move. I was trying to do this. I was trying to get that. And it was, I'm not saying we done we done everything perfectly because we never, but it was it was a it should have been a good position to be in. I think um, yeah. playing for your boyhood club and loving every minute of it and, and moving when obviously in, in in perfect scenarios you could move, but. It goes back to that, like we, we cannot all do everything perfect. And in hindsight, if we all had it, we would be wonderful. Sometimes things happen, and I never expected to move, as you know, Jacko, like right up until the last day. Um, and it's the wrong words to use, but I expected to be at Hibs. Um, I was a Hibs player, I, I was captain, as you know, John Collins who took the, the armband off me, and obviously the, the kind of the weeks leading into moving, um, which was another massive setback for me as an individual. Do you know what I mean? Representing the club the day that Tony Mowbray made me captain was, was yeah. it's still one of the, the most. Um, proud days in my career, really. Do you know what I mean? Even the, what I went and achieved on after that, it was. I still remember Dougie Fowler, who was the fitness coach at the time, saying, "Didn't tell him, didn't tell him. I told you, but you're going to be, you're going to be the captain, son." And I was like, I was buzzing. Doing it, Grant Eastmate. Uh, doing it, Grant and um, Eastmate. Uh, uh, Grant Grasswork, sorry. And I remember him telling me a nice summer's day, and then obviously Tony asked me for a chat and told me that um, you're catless, you're the driver, everything that we do, blah, blah, blah. And I know how big an honour it's going to be for you, so you're going to be the captain. So, like, I know how I want to get that taken off you. And, and I know some people say, well, you deserve to get it taken off you. You've done this, you've done that, you've done that. But it didn't change the fact that um, it was a it was a real disappointment for me. So, how did I, that happen, Evan? How, sorry, how, how, did, how did John Collins put that to you? How Talk us through that conversation. I can't what even remember. Off the, off the cuff, I just... I, I think he... I think he's said something along like he, he felt it was a distraction that I didn't need. Um, and I always had naturally bit back and argued that I thought it was it was a Mickey take really. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I never felt like I'd, I was training as hard as I'd ever trained. I was as fit as I was ever fit. And 
I'm not so sure like if you have a, a cut of below performance uh, below par performances it then means that you've took your eye off the ball because like best players in the world have poor games you know what I mean but I cannot think of any game sticking out in that time um, that I was like oh I was rubbish tonight do you know what I mean and listen I had loads of poor games in my career I'm not saying I was good every week but I'd like to think most people would never question my, my appetite to play and my, my desire to try and help the team and to run and, and be a good teammate. So I suppose when that comes under 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 scrutiny and under question, you naturally it's a natural human thing to kind of bite back. So mm. it's well documented that, that me and John never seen eye to eye. He he thought one thing, I thought the other. Um, and it was it was tough because you, you we probably both I'd like to think because I'd like to think we've matured enough to to kind of know go back and, and be bitterer if you know what I mean but I think we've both done things wrong um, and if we could do it again we would but the harsh reality is when you have two people that are I think I'm right and he thinks he's right um, I think he's wrong and he thinks I'm wrong then it's, it's just it's a natural thing that it just doesn't work so um, to, to move was probably the best for, for every party really um, even though it's still it's still you still always have a heavy heart because like you, I'm really as an individual I did really like changing my life. I like routine. I like, and, and I never knew anything different through playing with my pals and breaking through the youth team and going to Easter Road every morning, and staying in a flat just across the road, as you know, Jack. Or you know, I used to walk to work. Do you know what I mean? It was like I felt like I had the best life in the world. But naturally, in football, yeah. you're going to move on. You just, you just wish, or I wish anyway, I could, I could have moved um, in better circumstances um, and, and, and potentially have had a better reputation and, and maybe not said some of the things you said and, and maybe not have any animosity towards John or whatever but unfortunately these are things that occur in your career and you and you just have to live with them really The thing is Tomo that at that time it'd be very difficult not to because there was a, a, the whole thing seemed to be a kind of atmosphere of conflict inside the club it was the players against John there was some weird stuff going on behind the scenes in terms of how the players were being treated and things they were being asked to do which you can maybe talk about, but it didn't seem like a healthy environment. It seemed that it was designed for conflict. There was it was inevitable that there was going to be a, a split. No, it was. I think it was a difficult time, and, and the fact that there's facts there, Jacko. Like that, I had left to go to the club, and, and everybody thinks me and Scotty uh, brush each other's teeth. Do you know what I mean? We we, 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 we didn't. Do you know what I mean? We we. He's got a big a big opinion. He's got a big character. He's got his own life, and I we were joined at the hip, and we were best of buddies, but. And he, and he knows that even to this day, um, I'd do anything for him and vice versa. It doesn't mean that we, we live in each other's pockets. Um, mm-hmm. And when, when the players done the revolt and all met Rod Petrie, I'd, already, I'd left the club for two or three yeah. months before that happened. But, so, like, a lot of people just want to drive an agenda that it was only me and John Collins that had an issue. It was John had an issue with a lot of the players. The, well, that's the, what I'm saying. This thing, this thing seemed to be simmering, Tom. It did, and I, I just think you... No, the biggest thing I would say, and I might be totally wrong, Jacko, I just... I look back and think that he inherited a brilliant group that were all kind of fizzling up to like to like a, a kind of climax where like people yeah. were starting to get moved. O'Connor was obviously the first to move to Russia, then Riordan. Prior to that, Ian Murray had moved on, Gary Caldwell had moved on, and then the next batch were, were starting to attract interest. Marcel, Witties, Scotty's obviously, Fletcher was obviously just slightly after that, etc. So I think when John inherited the club as his first job, and I'm not sticking up for John. I might be totally off off what he thought in the the situation. But when you start to potentially lose some of your players, and I'd like to think we were good players, um, and they're moving on to different clubs and pastures new, there's a natural instinct to 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 want to fight against that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, in my opinion, he fought against it in the best way. Um, 
I think the like the man management part is is key, and unless I've been a manager myself, so the harsh reality is you need to manage people that you maybe didn't particularly like. John maybe never particularly liked some of us. Maybe I was one of them. Mm. Um, I like to think maybe Michael Stewart was maybe another that he never potentially gravitated to. But um, nobody gravitates to Michael Stewart. Uh, listen, I, I, I like I like Michael. He's a great thing, Don. But listen, Michael's a top player as well, and I think that's like so. Michael would have the same testosterone that we all have that we, we feel as though yeah. we, we want to play and we we, we want to be um, we have that ego partners that we think we're the best player so Michael would have believed that he was the best player in that current crop so when he's then started to maybe no play as much or, or get less opportunities he's, the natural thing would be to fight back for that or have an opinion on why you're not playing and, and probably not agree with what the manager's saying I would say that some of the scenarios that popped up for for me personally was I felt like it was it was almost a fight every time we went to have a chat Mm-hmm. It was never a the dialogue and the communication between the two years was was just never great and it never ever I never ever left his office thinking apart from the very first day that he took me and Scotty in and said listen you are the best players he's a this or that he, he blew blew smoke right up our backsides both of us and we both left the office thinking that we were ten foot tall he wanted mm-hmm. us in front of the he wanted us in first every morning he wanted us in front of the the warm ups he wanted us driving the training standards he, he and he, he treated us for probably two or three weeks where I thought well that's I'm not saying normal, but it's probably how we had been treated anyway through through Morgan, yeah. through Bobby, etc., etc. And then when that changed, I suppose, and I know the easy argument to that is that could change because of my attitude or, or something I've done or whatever I've done. I'd like to disagree with that, but he might see different. I just think the communication between us players and, and, and the staff at that given time was, was, I don't know if toxic is the right word, but it was difficult. And, and when you have difficult situations as players, when you're all wanting to fight for your livelihood and fight for the club that you're representing. It's it's amazing how small things can get t- taken so out of proportion and then it can be so fractious within the camp that it can be so detrimental to the results. And, and without sounding disrespectful to the group, but the, the, the team never went that way, really. No. You know what I mean? The, 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 the harsh reality is, is that when good players were starting to move on, which is hard to hard to replace, the, the, place, the players that John brought in were... Were, were, were like the kind of French boys, etc., and some of the boys that he wanted to bring in that he believed that were better than some of the ones that were moving on anyway. He was well documented in saying that that he was he was bringing in better players anyway. If they didn't work out, it, it doesn't look particularly good. The thing that I never understood, Tom, and perhaps can talk a little bit about is that some of the things that were going on inside the club, you know, not on the training pitch, in you know John's office or whatever, it seemed designed to to be quite demeaning. It was almost as if I'm the boss here, you, you know. There was there was certain there was not something where, where we get the guys to to strip down and go on scales and all that and it was all about it just seemed unnecessary sort of a, a way to put people down a little bit I, I, that's the bit that I that I just struggle to understand why you would do that in order to try and if if the aim is to to put a happy team in the pitch and a winning team in the pitch none of that was conducive. No, that, no, the bit I would say about that, Jack, was that. I suppose now you've matured, you look back and you think of these scenarios. And I think if John had a better relationship and better people skills and better communication skills with the players, these scenarios probably wouldn't have disgruntled the players as much. But when you're starting to have a bit of fraction and a bit, sorry, fracas and a a couple of disagreements as a group towards the staff, i.e. like the way we went through training with Tony Mowbray and then how fit we were and how sharp we were compared to what we then used to do in training with... with, um, with John was 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 night and day really, um, and by the way, wonderful player, like left footed, 
Scottish midfielder, like for the borders. He was somebody that I really, really looked up yeah. to when I was a young player. Do you know what I mean? And, I, and by the way, I, I'm not taking nothing of that away from him because he was a wonderful football player. Um, but when it comes to Pete O'Skulls and it being about us as football players now, he's a manager now. It's not about you as your your playing career or what you achieved or I'm bigger and better than them or I earn more money than them or I played at a higher level. It's about you, you are the Hibs manager now. So even if you might think that we are not as good as what you are, um, or, or stuff that maybe works for you doesn't always work for, for everybody else and and I suppose the relationship with the players and the communication I would flip that and say that it wasn't probably as good as it potentially could have been so these wee things he going in and standing in the morning every morning was was becoming quite resentful for the players having to go along and drop drop take your t-shirt off and drop your kegs don't your slips obviously and stand on the scales and tell them your weight it was, it was one of these scenarios that Rather than having the weight, uh, the weight, but like a lot of teams will have maybe in the physio department or a sports science department, and you kind of go in and it's you kind of maybe look forward to maybe seeing the people in the morning. These wee scenarios didn't seem to be that big a problem, but I would say, and it, listen, it wasn't that big a problem getting weighed and standing with, with my kegs on and telling them my weight. It didn't bore me one bit, but when you started to obviously have a no particularly good relationship with somebody, these wee Ah, you do. You you kind of. It was people were waiting at the very last second to go along. Can you maybe had to get your weight done before half nine or whatever it may be? I'm just plucking that number at the sky. I didn't. I can't quite remember what time we had to be along to get it done. But the boys were going along at like thirty seconds to go and queuing outside his office just to go in and get weighed. Whereas if that was, in my opinion, a better circumstantial um, part within your morning routine, i.e., breakfast, players just come and go. It's really relaxed. Yeah. A real nice atmosphere is something that you enjoy doing, if you know what I mean. And it's part of your routine, whereas that part, of, aye, that part of the team was something that nobody enjoyed really. And it, it was because it wasn't just getting weighed and saying 76.7 or whatever, it was especially to me. And I'm only going to speak for myself is that he would say, Oh, you need to be a wee bit stronger there, or you need a wee bit there, or you need a wee bit there, looking at your torso. And I'm standing there as a kind of 21 year old, 22 year old, thinking I'd run through walls, man. I didn't mm. need muscles anywhere that I didn't need, you know what I mean? It doesn't mean that I didn't want to get better. I didn't want to eat better or sleep better or try and become a better player, hundred percent. But when you don't have a great relationship with somebody and he's he's telling you that you might need to be a bit better abs on your right hand side or whatever, you're like, was this every day, Kevin, or every week or what? Every day, what David, every, day? every day, every day, it's astonishing. <laughs> it's absolutely astonishing. So, so before you even kicked the ball training, you're getting body shamed by the manager. Well, you're kind of saying that you need to like, listen it's the same as a sports science you know let's bulk you up let's get you stronger I, I get that but obviously in that current in that period and in, in that specific situation it probably never had a good good relationship enough with the boys and his man skills to, to be saying these type of it's just a harsh he might be saying the right things and by the way ripped to bones he was he was a brilliant in the gym as I say an unbelievable player but when it comes to the wee bits of managing that group and then getting the best out of individuals, I, I, I think he failed massively. Well, let's talk then, Tomo, you know, from, from a guy that's man's management skills were, let's say, questionable. You then get the move to Rangers and you're put, you're, you know, it's your introduction to Walter Smith. And I know how deeply you cherish that relationship and, and what a great relationship it was. But what a difference in terms of man managers. I mean, I remember I spoke to you the night you'd signed I think he called me leaving Auchenhowie, Murray Park as it was then. And I've, I could tell right away what was really noticeable was you just felt as if you, there was no doubt about it. You were certain that this was the right move. 
you were signing for the right manager. Everything about it just felt right. I could tell the way you were talking that night. There was no doubt in your mind that you were going to succeed there. It must have been like an absolute fresh start. I just, Bob was just touching on Walter first. Like everybody knows how high I hold him um, in regard to like he's. I just try and live my life to to hopefully conduct myself in a manner of respect and being humble to 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 what he was. He was he was just a class act. And listen, I understand a new signing. You're going to make him feel top of the world, but but he made me feel top of the world every day. By the way, whether he was giving me a rant or a kick up the backside. Um, he had a, a natural knack to the humility and, and, and looking after human beings that I still felt he really cared about me and really valued me. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it goes back to just wee daft things, Jacko. Like, I still remember Willie Mackay being on the phone and the deal that we had we had agreed was slightly different. No less money, but it was slightly different on appearance fee to, to basic wage. Mm-hmm. And also I was a wee bit uncomfortable with the with the appearance being as big as it was compared to the basic wage being slightly smaller than it was. And and um, Willie McKay said, oh, they'd already printed off all the forms. They'd already changed them on Martin Bain and Andrew Dixon. I remember like it was yesterday. No problem. We'll change it. No problem. And then it was the same, just as I, w- I had signed and Sir David phoned to say that him and Willie were sitting in whatever it was, Charlotte Square or whatever, in, in Sir David's offices. They were they just opened a bottle of champagne and obviously Walter's laughing at them doing the phone on the loudspeaker. And obviously he goes, oh, by the you know what Wally McKay was like? He goes, oh, by the way, he says, uh, he says, have you put the club car in? Obviously, I didn't know I was getting a club car or even wanted a club car because I couldn't drive. It was the last thing that I thought about. <laughs> and, uh, and Martin was like, right, Wally, are you taking the piss? He was like, we've just signed the forms again. We've just printed them. He says, listen, I will give him a club car, no problem. And I still remember getting the first club cars Um and Sandy Jardin used to look after them. And obviously I said to Sandy, oh, Sandy, am I getting a car? And he was like, looked at the list. He's like, Tomo, you're not on the list. I was like, oh, I got a club car as well. I said, I need to go and uh, speak to Martin or, or Andrew Dixon and find out what the script is. I said, I didn't think they put in my contract because I told them the scenario. And he's like, guys, I'm sure it'll get sorted. You didn't want for anything through there, Jacko. Eh? And that's mm-hmm. what, and I, know, I know that's not just off of Walter, but it's wee things like that. When you when you think about bending over backwards for you and, 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 and treating you hopefully the way you feel like you you, you deserve to be treated, that's so you got your club car. That doesn't get the best of an individual like feeling like how that makes you feel if that makes sense. So did you get your club car? I got my club car, aye, but I had to get somebody to come and pick up at the training room for me. I couldn't <laughs> <laughs> well, that's brilliant. <clears throat> so then, the the run the following year, the run at the UEFA Cup final was, I mean, that's the stuff that the dreams are made of, isn't it? Um, what, what was the highlight of that particular run in 2008 for you? It obviously the final didn't pan out the way you guys wanted it to. There's so many, David. It's just the starting in the Champions League with the group of death, the, do you know what I mean, drawing with Barcelona, the Ibrox, winning the very first, you know, we all have that dreamy standing on the telly when the Champions League music goes across your face and you have that split second when it goes to the advert and then all of a sudden the commentators come back on and to be that player, to be involved in that, to be a club that was playing on that stage was was, was it's what we all aspire to be, really. Um, that so was then, his anti-football night, wasn't it? He, he claimed that. Uh, yeah, was a one. I must have loved that. Must I, didn't have have loved. Enough, I didn't have enough energy to even speak to Jacko after the game. That's how Buster was going through that mix zone and he's got a cheek for his anti-football. Um, but I, suppose, I suppose when you're messy, you can say what you want. But uh, anti-football, no, no. But starting off, obviously, beating Stuttgart 2-1. And then drawing with Barcelona, then winning 3-0 in France. And obviously, I know there was a comparison with foot opening a can of Wormsy, like the, 
the team that got to Zaville, the team that got to Manchester. It's a natural debate that everybody has, but I, the one we disgruntled when I had to that as an ex-player is, um, and by the way, I was the, the team's biggest fan to try and hopefully they got over the line that there was a step further than we could get. That team scored three goals in France, scored two goals in Sport in Lisbon in the quarter-final UEFA Cup. But it's mm-hmm. like, I think teams, because of Messi, totals were anti-football, we drew 0-0 against probably one of the biggest superstar teams you could ever draw 0-0 against at, at Ibrox in front of 51, 52,000, probably one of the best atmospheres I've ever been involved in as a player. Mm. I think people think that we've done that every single round and, and we just won 1-0 with an offside goal or, or a deflection or, or a lucky penalty or something. It's, it's, it's probably the one bit that, um, if you're looking at our journey compared to obviously other teams' journey, that you get a wee bit um, a wee bit annoyed at. But I would say Florence, Davy, for me, um, if I could have if I could have 30 seconds back in my career um, without doing a disservice to, to, to loads of other great highs um, and, and, and many lows, to be honest. The, the 30 seconds stood when we Nacho got the ball to walk. Um, and by the way, and I mean this, I would have stuck my life on a wee man scoring. That's how confident I was. Um, and by well, the way, if he never scored, we wouldn't have got to Manchester because I was next in line to take the next penalty. Why were you so confident about Nacho? Because he just... <clears throat> It just the wee man just had a knack. He, but I think a lot of people forget that he scored the goal at Red Star Belgrade um, mm-hmm. in the round um, before. No, Panathinaikos. He scored Panathinaikos as well, Jacko. I but he scored obviously Red Star Belgrade was the game that got us into the Champions League. We won one nil. I got think with them. We went over there and drew nil nil. Now, now, over there. I was over there for that. And, so, and, and Red Star were a, a top team, to be fair. Yeah. A good team, and obviously over there is the most hostile atmosphere you'll probably ever play in as a player. So yeah. it was, it was. I think to go over there now, now we would have been right up against it. Um, I still really fancy does, but the game looks different, doesn't it? When you've got a one 0 lead, you're holding on to something, and that team was was catalyst at being able to hold on and, and never get beat really. But as you mentioned, the Panathinaikos one popped up, didn't get any bigger than the penalty that he scored at Florence. Obviously, do you know what I mean? Um, we right. just had an active man scoring and goals at really at really important times. Eh? By the way, Panathinaikos one was hysterical because. Walter was uh, at that time really concerned about domestically. It was real nip and tuck at the top of the table for the Premier League. That was all he was really caring about. He'd had his fun in Europe. The club had made a few quid, <laughs> and I think he remember. I think if I'm right, when Nacho scores the goal, he's like, "Oh fuff," <laughs> <laughs> because he knew that was it. He had more European football to deal with, and at that point, it was it was just becoming a distraction because it, at that point, getting all the way to Manchester doesn't seem real. But that goal was was the moment that it that it that it did become a reality. And I suppose that's that's why you look back at the the like the Barcelona the 0-0, no, no, the you can get having seven points out of nine to start with, and then the, hindsight's a wonderful thing, yeah. And it's it's not like you you, you ever dreamed or in your wildest imagination you thought, but actually getting beat obviously against Lyon, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have got to the Champions League Cup final. So yeah, they've obviously beat Lyon in that. Kind of winner takes all game at Ibrox um, when they obviously turned the tables and beat us three 0 at Ibrox. You could argue that it was a, it's a horrible way to look at it, I suppose, and, and and we never looked at it before the game like that. But um, it ended up being no bad result to give us an opportunity, obviously getting all the way to Manchester. So um, I'm pretty sure a lot of the fans would be in agreement of getting beat against Leon, or sorry, if we beat Leon and then got knocked out in the last sixteen in the Champions League over a double header against whoever we might have got. And not quite got as far, and not gave them quite as, as such an amazing journey. Then probably the three 0 defeat to Lyon was maybe one of the best defeats that we had had. Mm-hmm. It really was. It was an incredible. I remember being in Bremen when 
I've never seen a goalkeeping performance like Alan McGregor's, and he had plenty of them over the years, but that was special as well, wasn't it? Yeah, frightening. He's, he's, I was actually, me and Boyd, they were warming up. I just recovered from a double hernia op, um, so I'd missed like three or four weeks, um, and I actually wasn't fit, but I was desperate to be involved, obviously. Um, I'm sure the League Cup final was either just before that or just after that, um, the Dundee United one, and I, I'm saying again, I'd made the bench for that, but I, was, I wasn't fit. I was just telling the gaffer I was fit. Every time he said to me, you're all right, I was like, I am all right. Because I knew that the games were coming fucking fast. I literally couldn't run the length of me, but I was, my groins were agony. But I was saying to the physio every day, just getting my teeth and training just through the pain, really, and, and rushing. I think I was, I want to say I was back on the training pitch after about two and a half, three weeks, double hernia, which I know is quite, I think nowadays you can get back playing quite quick. But back then, you're talking about 2008, like nearly 12, 13 years ago, actually longer. Um it probably wasn't as common as getting back as quick, but I was, he was saying, he come to me, he said, I was training like through the pain, really, gritting my teeth, no showing him that. He's like, you all right? And I'm like, aye. He's like, involved on Saturday? I was like, aye, 100%. Knowing that I probably wouldn't play, but I just wanted to be involved. So, but I, he'd be right behind that, me and Boydie, um, warming up, thinking that it was like the Alamo. They were absolutely battering us. I've never seen a, a doing like it, really. And, and I'm, I'm not so sure without doing any other uh, goalie at the service. Um, I'm not so sure if we didn't have Alan McGregor in goals that night, we would have got anywhere near Manchester. Yeah, absolutely. Aye. Was Manchester itself, Kevin, just a, a disappointment that he's never really laid a glove on Zenit? Um, I, I think the way you're made, David, you, you naturally look back and, and when you get beaten cup finals, you when you become, I suppose, a a winner and that's your DNA and you and you start to thrive on, on the pressures of trying to not come second, I suppose. Um you you'll you'll always look back in a wee bit of disappointment and it's it's kinda of how I look back on it. A, a bit in anticlimax, such a special occasion and such a monumentous um, game to be involved in to then then come up second best. It just it just felt like a real kick in the teeth really. But I suppose that's how everybody will feel when they when they get beaten big games. Um I think a lot of people forget, David, that it was 0-0 at half time and I was I I was playing well in the game personally. Like you know that. Listen, I'd rather played rubbish and, and won, but I felt like I was I was playing well. I was I was putting myself about. The it was obviously really hot and the atmosphere was unbelievable. I've never I've never seen anything like it really. And by the way, the Zenit fans were just as just as good really. There was obviously a bit of nervous energy in the in the stadium as well. Probably like neither team wanting to fail or neither team wanting to lose really. But right. it was um, at halftime at 0-0, I'm thinking this is this is perfect really. Do you know what I mean? They'll start to take more chances. We'll get better on the counter. And I, I know it's a stupid way to look at it, but and I'm not doing uh, big dash at the service because he was he was brilliant for us, um, top top man, um, and he was a top player even though we got him at the wrong side of his career. But I do think if Daniel Kuzan hadn't got sent off in Florence, mm-hmm. uh, I do think that game could be all the all the difference. And I, I do I do think that when you think of McGregor making the saves in, in Bremen and and we natural stepping up for that penalty. There's no doubt that that group needed luck and we needed things to fall in the right place for us. So to have someone like Daniel that could could genuinely be unplayable at times and obviously his running power and his, his focal point um, like he was in the 4-2 game at, at, at Parkhead, they had the big performances that he was more than capable and I do think he was a another big factor that, I'm not feeling sorry for, I'm not getting the violins out, but I do think mm-hmm. there was a few factors that um, he would have been one that would come straight to my mind that if we'd had big Daniel as a as a focal point in that game, and Adash have always maybe coming on for the last half hour, um, and just getting that wee opportunity to get his bum in. And I'm just visually just off the cuff thinking about how the game could he look different. But I do think a lot of people forget that um, at, at half time, no, no, we were well in the game. Eh? Like we were in, the, in that changing room at half time, thinking that we could win it. 
to be fair, you were in the game until the ninety second minute because the second goal came and injury didn't you know, so so it was just just a wee bit flat, I suppose, that he's never actually created that many chances. I think you had one in the second half. I think Fergie might have had a chance in the second half. I think he had the one that went across the box, didn't he? Across the six yard box that he kind of slid in at the back post. But aye, it's, listen, they deserved it. They were a brilliant team. Um, I think a lot of people forget that they, um, they beat Bayern Munich, I think, four or five nil. Aggregate, I think the first game was four nil. And then they, they, the big striker that they had, I think, that scored a hat trick against Bayern Munich in the semi final, he was suspended as well. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can look at it, I suppose, whatever way you want. But I do think for us as a team, um, the moments that we had right through that was was I through grit and determination, and I'd like to think a brilliant squad and a, an unbelievable leader at the top, getting every last ounce out of every player. The um, the, the final we could have just done with a wee bit a wee bit lady luck on our side, and we never got it really, and and, and rightly so. The the top players that they had punished us in the end. I was going to say, Tom, you know, when when you look back on it, and even when you were experiencing it at, at the time that run, how much of that has to be attributed to Walter? Because we had a conversation uh, on this podcast a, a few weeks ago about, you know, in, in his, his first stint at Rangers when he had the loud drops and gas coins and all that, he, he maybe didn't structure them. He maybe kind of let them go and play and do their own thing the way they did. But but your team was talking about, you know, bigger than some of the parts. There's a lot of talented players in there, but I'm not sure that run happens without Walter doing what he did in terms of, I think he realised we can't go toe-to-toe with Barcelona's. We can't, you know, be expansive. We can't, we're going to have to find a structure and a way of playing. So how much was that attributable to the run itself, Tom? Can, can Can you quantify it? Massive, Jack really, and I, I, another one thing that jumps out at me when I think of what a lot of people would think, oh, he was like tactic to this, tactic to that, and like you're right, our, our probably either underwater domestically, Jacko was 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 that we played with two strikers, sometimes played with almost four because you would hmm. you would play with like a, a Lee McKillick or a, a Naismith or a Lafferty on the left, you know what I mean, and then a Devo yeah. would obviously jump up a line, and effectively it would sometimes just be me and Barry in the middle of the pitch. If Hutton played, he would almost play like a winger, or Whitty would play like a winger, so like. Um, the kind of structure of the team domestically was was we had the best players would so try and go out and win basically. Yeah. Whereas in Europe, the one bit that I, I bet you a lot of people we'll, we'll talk about now obviously, but I bet you a lot of people didn't they won't remember, but it'll, it'll maybe one of the things that will think that was really important. And people will maybe think, oh, we were with this like Walter was this tactical genius, and he was, but it was really subtle changes. And no one of the biggest subtle changes that he made, Jacko, was mm-hmm. personnel. Brahim and Danny never played domestically. Yeah, played in every game, and and he didn't play in a four four two by the way because he couldn't. Mm-hmm. He just didn't suit Brahim and Danny. Yeah, he played in a four five one. It was the same, like playing like a Lee McCulloch off the left. So like Big Jig was was like a catalyst for getting the team up the pitch. He was brilliant in it because he was such a big, strong, powerful boy. Brilliant in the air, um, do the hard yards back the pitch. Whereas a boy who was was the best goal scorer I played with in my career, unbelievable, like top, top man, but he never played that much in Europe. So without actually like going into too much tactical depth, what the team needed and how the games looked was how Walter picked his personnel to give the team the best chance. Um, mm-hmm. So you could argue that is tactical, really, but it wasn't like, oh, we worked in training on playing on the counter-attack, like the Steve Davis goal up, kind of up, back and through and runs down the line and plays it across the box and Dashable scores in, in Sport and Lizard. We never done any patterns to play on that. It was mm-hmm. just Walter knew that the game would look like that and he knew that the extra man in midfield playing against these these top top players would give us 
a better opportunity staying in the game. And then back in that we had the quality when the ball did turn over and we got the opportunities, albeit um, like less possession and less opportunities to score your goal than you were getting domestically. But he gave the team the best chance. And that's the bit of, obviously, Boydie's a good mate of mine. That's not doing Boydies or that a disservice, but like maybe the running capacity and, and what Boydie would maybe bring to the party in a game in Europe when you have less of the ball and less opportunities. And by the way, I'd put my life on Boydie scoring one out of one opportunity, but maybe then the, the detrimental of that, they maybe be able to harry and chase and, and maybe help the midfield who was, was maybe more suited to, to, to a different personnel than it would have been for Boydie. And the same again, maybe me and Barry playing in the middle of the pitch as a two, and we're playing with two strikers, we maybe would have just got overrun. We maybe wouldn't have been good enough to get on top or to help the back four or, or do the job that would have been needed in that given game. And Walter was... He was brilliant at that, Jacko, just picking the right personnel for the right game to give the team the best opportunity to win. And the players totally trusted him as well. If, if Walter says it, then you know, well, this guy knows what he's talking about. It's not as if you're, you're going out onto the pitch thinking, is the manager called this one right? Aye, and, and talk, I'll, I'll just use Boyd as an example because he's obviously a good mate of mine. He's, can he go for scoring a hat-trick, which he'd done regularly through his career, like potentially being the best player on the pitch domestically on the Saturday and the team wins 3-0 and and Boydie scores two of the goals and maybe sets up one of the other ones and then find himself on the bench on the Tuesday night or the Wednesday night mm. or even the Thursday night if it was in the European games, which for, I know Boydie was disappointed in that because you didn't get to where Boydie got to and be the player that he was. We know be disappointed to get left out. But the way Walter had the relationship with the players and his communication between himself and Boydie, would he not made it better, but would he certainly made it an easier pill to swallow for Boydie, knowing that, it wasn't about just Boydie, it wasn't just about me, it wasn't about Brahim, it wasn't about Barry, it was about the team trying to be successful. And, and Walter would never be disrespectful to a player, it would always be what was the best interest to give the team the best chance to win that game. Mm-hmm. Kevin, tell us about, tell us about um, your old firm experiences, because I mean, Rangers fans to this day, um, you know, revere you for, for your attitude or the attitude that you showed well, throughout your three years at Ibrook, but particularly you seem to be right up for the for the old firm games and obviously everybody talks about Robbie Keane who's probably still quivering away somewhere every time that um, that, that video comes on Twitter or whatever, you know. Um, why were you so up for those particular games? I just think it suited me really, Davey. I, I liked, I'd like to think I was a big game player really and, and um, I, I, I relished them. I loved, I loved the build-up. I loved the, the intensity. Went up a slight notch in training and and obviously the, the media... Um, magnitude for that week, the build-up, the, the interviews, the the and it, obviously it's far, far bigger now, eh? Because there's obviously more more resources and, and, and social media and more club media probably now than there ever been. But I just I just relished them really, Davy. And I, I also understood quite quickly in my Rangers career that, that second best was 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 nay good. So when they games come around and, and nine times out of ten, season to season, the, the kind of twelve points that are available between you and your arch rivals are, are really important on on where the title ends up going. So, mm-hmm. I, and I also felt um, just the way I, I kind of evolved as a player that me being quite aggressive and, and, and early on in games. And Jack will tell us because you had the conversations, Jack with Walter. You, you you used to say I knew that if if Tomo started off the game well within mm-hmm. the first few minutes, the first five to ten minutes, he says, I knew the team would win. I knew yeah. the team would do well. Um, so, And that was probably without really having loads and loads of in-depth conversations with Walter on how that looked. I just, I sensed that that was important for the team. Sometimes the, the game was flat. Sometimes it wouldn't happen until 20, 25, 30 minutes into games. But when the games come around, I felt as though it was, and I, I still think the players, 
you sometimes feel a bit awkward talking about it, but I still think the players, listen, Scott, he's done it for, for a decade and a half, do you know what I mean? Putting himself out and and um, and obviously kind of for the other side of the city as such, you know what I mean? But you cannot tell me that if a Celtic fan's listening to me talking, maybe dislikes you personally or whatever, or the team that you play for, like the kind of the battle that that midfield engine room, the the kind of getting on top and getting the line surely it being on top was so important in the games and, and yeah. listen the game's different eras, the changes, it looks different, the goals are different, the personnel's different. But the I think the the kind of winning the the kind of battle is, is just as important as any part of the, the game still to this day. So um I felt that was something that I brought to the team and I felt it helped the team and it was just something that naturally evolved really and it's it's humbling to think that when I go back to, to any events at the club and how much the club have looked after me over the years since I've retired, that um you 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 hopefully are, are reasonably thought of within the within the fan base. Tell me this, Tom, because I'm I'm interested in the, the kind of personality clash between yourself and Barry. And I can imagine that you'd be a little bit more low-key in the build, in the dressing room ten minutes before you went out into an old firm game. But I've spoken to Barry about what he used to do. He was in fighting himself in the middle. Who you who you looking at? <laughs> then he'd go padding about and listen to the noise outside the dressing room. And you could just, you know, I, I, you get a sense of I'm almost building himself up into a dervish situation for before he goes out into that. What was that like to 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 witness to see, you know, and and did you look at this and go, I mean, what the are we getting here? Because <laughs> it it's completely different from your own persona. Ah, listen, I've said it on the record numerous times. Barry for me was the was his, the best Scottish player bar none, really, and, and probably has been for the last couple of decades. He's just an unbelievable player, an unbelievable leader. Um, brilliant captain, and he and he, he did he, he carried the kind of team on his shoulders really, and, the, and any negativity and any any um, disappointment, Barry was at the forefront of taking that on the chin. Um, but when it comes to the games, he just, I suppose, similar to yourself, when you're when you're a boyhood fan of a club and you get to play for them and you, and you play in Edinburgh derbies and you and you look forward to trying to beat Hearts or whatever it may be, and your pals are maybe some Hearts fans, some Hibs fans, mm-hmm. the kind of bragging rights, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we're all the same as what people are in any walk of life, really. And Barry was, um, as you mentioned, listen, I think everybody will know that me and Barry are slightly different characters when it comes to, <laughs> I'd quite like to sit in the, in the background, do you know what I mean? And, and and be quite quiet and quite hopefully unassuming, do you know what I mean? But um, maybe a wee bit different when I, when, I, when I walked down the tunnel and onto that pitch. But Barry for me was, was, was the one that all our young players looked up to. And, mm-hmm. and 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 how he conducted himself and how he trained and and it wasn't just about the old firm game when it came along or that ninety minutes it was a, it was a collective do you know what I mean like how he prepared how he daft things how he how he do you know what I mean would sit Barry was the only player that that used to, and none of us were brave enough today to be honest Barry was probably the only player that used to sit with his shorts and t shirt on before the manager had pulled the the chart back. Uh, in the team, the rest of us used to sit with our blue shorts on, sweat pissing off us, hope, hope, hoping that we were going to get a game. Um, but you just, you do, you you, you naturally watch Jacko, but he's, uh, to be fair, I, I never really clocked him kind of growling or, or doing anything untoward before these games. He's kind of ritual in his routine. Um, for me, was every game's a big game, really, for, for Rangers. Mm-hmm. I know that's a bit cliche because when all firm games come around, the, the magnitude of them and the rivalry and the um, just know how important these games are to people. Obviously, it is a, it is a slightly bigger game, but um, the way he conducted himself and the, and the way he was, and, and us young players naturally wanted a bit of what Barry was getting. He was, I'm guessing, talking about money, he would have been the highest paid player at the club. He was the captain of the club. He was he was the biggest name. He was captain of the country at the time. So us young players wanted to try and 
emulate um, or try and get close to what what Barry was really achieving. So um, just just a just a brilliant lad, Jack O'Reilly. Do you know what I mean? A brilliant captain. Love him a bit. Loved playing with him. Um, loved our ding dongs and training. And um, as you say, I think you would need to be an idiot not to realise that me and Barry are, are slightly different in our different ways. Eh? <laughs> that, that day that Morissette who scored the last minute goal is you know it's the same game as your challenges a couple of your challenges on on Robbie Keane what did you go out into that game with the intention of well he's one of their main men so I'm going to take out their chief or did that just evolve as the game went on because it was obviously early on wasn't it nah, it just evolved Davey really is. I'd love to tell you that I've I stood in the tunnel growling and I was doing this and I, was, I probably was growling in the tunnel, but it was... Walter had always used to mark my card about like starting sharp and imposing myself and and, and and sometimes gave me a wee kick up the backside to tell me that if I never, I would maybe be sitting next to him. So it was like, I was always <laughs> I was always thoughtful that he obviously thought that that was quite an important thing. Um, and obviously, that anyone that's watched that clip a million times like I have, um, and probably a lot of my pals have maybe clocked up the rest of the views. Uh <laughs> The, the actual go Lee McCulloch actually runs towards Kamara and Kamara flicks it around the corner. I actually run to go towards Kamara. So I'd love to tell you that it was that Robbie was in my sights or whatever he wasn't. It didn't really matter to me who it was. Um, I just wanted to try and impose myself in the game. And um, the reaction off the back of it, I think, naturally for us being competitive, what Robbie said to me, I can't remember what he said to me, but he pulled my jersey down, obviously, and then I kind of pushed him. And I didn't push him, to be honest, hand, like, hand on my heart. If he doesn't pull my jersey down towards him as he's getting up, I, I'm I'm not pushing him off me. I'm I'm I've just tackled him up and ready to go again. But because he pushed me, uh, sorry, pulled me, and I've had a wee push at him. You naturally, you've now got a wee personal duel on the pitch. You know what I mean? So I took it upon myself um, after he had called me what he had called me that like I was I was I was making a beeline for him really. Do you know what I mean? And every time I got an opportunity to go and impose my physicality on him and getting a chance to put my foot in um, anywhere around his feet, I was I was taking it really. Um, and it's was it a defining factor in the in the game? It wasn't. It? Um, you know, Celtic every game that I played against Celtic, they had top players, top team, and and the games were on knife edge. I can only really think. And by the way, I, I, I was lucky to beat them on, on numerous occasions, but um, and we and we well beat them a couple of times. But the games were still really close. They had brilliant players, um, top teams. Strako, obviously, the manager for the for the Lions, Sherry, when I was there, um, and Robbie was a was a brilliant player. Really, just. I suppose unluckily for him a wee bit and luckily for me that it's, it's caught the, the Rangers fans' imagination. But to me, I made day tackles every other week, really. And it's yeah. I get on that occasion, it, it looks a bit bigger and better than it was. But for me, I was um, I, just, I wanted to win. I'm not buying that you don't remember what he called you. Nah, you can't. You can't. I'm sure he told me I was a skint C-U-N-T, Jack O'Hare. <laughs> um, no, by the way, I wouldn't mind a tenor behind... I wouldn't mind a tenor behind Probably seen him. I'm pretty sure he's no bored his backside about me, to be honest. Yeah, I well, it's all relative, isn't it, Tolo? Another fascinating thing about the the, the whole old firm thing when when you were playing at the same time as, as Bruni was playing on the other side of the pitch, and yet the two of you were absolutely best mates. And there'll be an awful lot of Rangers fans and Celtic fans will not be able to get their head around that about how you could go hammer and tongs at each other for 90 minutes, and then at the end of it, I don't know whether you've ended up ever been home together after games or whatever but um, it's a, we had Bruno on here saying exactly that that you know you'd go and kick lumps at each other and compete and at the end of the game you shake hands jump into you know 
whoever was driving that day and the two of you would share the, the car back to Edinburgh. Aye, we, well, uh, we, obviously he would have his camp and we would have our camp, Jacko, but we, um, aye, listen, I, that, to me, Scotty is a friend for life, really, and that'll, that'll never change. We have the kids, these boys come to my academy, um, Lisa's a diamond, do you know what I mean? They're like Heather and Brian and Graham, do you know what I mean? Like, if I've went through a lot with Scott, do you know what I mean? Obviously, we took touching hearts, really, but I went through with his sister, etc. as well. He's his wee brother, used to come and stay in our flat. He's like, he's a friend for life, Scotty. Yeah. And I get the rivalry and I get some people kind of get their head around that. But for us, I'd like to think that nobody could ever question our desire and our drive to win for our rep, our, our rep yeah. what's the right word for, for my club and for yeah. his club, basically. Um, and, and I think that's the only thing that, that, that matters, really, that that, that effort and um, our application towards that would, would never be questioned. So friends for life off the pitch should, I'm not so sure it should really bother anyone. Um, I get that people have an opinion on it because that's what football is. But he was, I, th- I think the only time we used to travel, Jacko, was um, I, I think he actually got sent off that that, that day. Um, right. sent off that. He did get sent off. The day that he got sent off, me, Whitty and Scotty went to, I want to say it might be Mar Hall or Cameron House. Didn't he quote me on the hotel what we were using at the time? But we, we played Czech Republic through the week. Scotty actually scored. I actually come out on record saying, you know, he obviously got a bit of stick off the Celtic fans. We had won the game. Mm-hmm. Um, we were obviously on our way to winning another title. And then I'm sure he scored the winner in the Czech Republic game, albeit it was only it was only a friendly, a header. I can remember like it was yesterday at Hamden. And I think I, I was on record saying that it sums up his personality and his character as a, as a professional, really. Um, mm-hmm. But he's got the the capacity to put disappointment and, and, and hard times aside and, and still go and produce the goods really. And, and that's why he had the career that he had. No yeah. anyone having a different opinion on him. He's just he's top man and I know if I was in a gutter, um, which I maybe was a few times when I was younger, not so much now they live the, the life that I live, but he's maybe prone to being in the gutter now and again still. He could pick up the phone at any time in the morning, three, four, five in the morning. He knows I would jump in my bed to go and help him out, and I'd like yeah. to think that would be reciprocated. And that's that's what I think he's got. Really, and that'll I couldn't care what anyone says. That that will never change, really, because he's, he's he's a mate for life. Yeah. So so Tom, we'll move it on. Obviously, you, you you reached a decision, and it kind of came out of the blue. It certainly did to me. I think I was in hold at the time, <laughs> and you phoned up and, and said that uh, you you were going to go to Middlesbrough. Um, what was that conversation with Walter like? And and looking back now, was it a mistake? Is it a regret? What's uh, uh, talk us through all of it? It was it was a tough time really because we just won the double jack away. I just I think I played like 45, 46 games that season. Um, we'd obviously won the league before the top six, before the split fixtures yeah. as well. We went to Easter Road obviously um, and won one nil. Kyle Lafferty had obviously scored, so we won the league relatively convincing that year um, in, in terms of it wasn't as close as it had been in different days I still think of, um, you know Tannadice you think of Rugby Park yeah, even though I Millsborough obviously Rugby Park but I think you're losing it when, when Celtic won up at Tannadice and we got beat up at Pataudry and then us winning at Tannadice and um, and then obviously getting to win it before the top six fixtures had come or maybe maybe Easter Road was maybe the first fixture of the top six um, nice. we're going through the 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 old terrace stand was obviously getting um, it was a building site effectively it was quite a unique place to play Easter Road when that was going through so when the scenario came round Jack I can only speak for like what I feel as an individual it was it was a strange scenario to be in because I felt the club was there for me to kind of take over the mantle for Barry when Davy was going to left I'd already had the conversations with Walter that like 
I was next in line really to be the captain. Do you know what I mean? I was, I was, and that was probably before even Davy become the captain. It was, and they were the conversations that I used to have with Walter that um, if I showed the right personality and I continued improving the way I improve and, and, and growing as an individual, um, how I lead and how I, how I, um, how I insert myself on, on obviously the group, the, the, the mantle's there for me if I, if I want it really. Um, that was the kind of the gauntlet challenge that Walter used to lay down to us. Obviously, Barry then eventually then moved to uh, to Birmingham. Davy obviously become the captain. He was obviously at the, the tail end of his career, Davy really, um, but rightly so the captain because he was the kind of the godfather of all young players that we used to look for and seek for advice. But when the Middlesbrough bit come around, Jack, what I can only I can only think when I was on holiday in Cyprus with all the family and speaking to Gordon, and Gordon kind of gave me an insight from his perspective to say that like I can't believe I'm not, we're even getting a chance to sign you like like. Mm-hmm. The, the, how highly you're thought of there and blah, blah, blah. But obviously none of us knew when we were having these conversations that the club was going to go into the difficulty that it went in within a year because I only had a year left on my contract. Um, and obviously, without being big heated, I mean, I mean this as humble as I can. It, it, it should have been quite a, a silly thing for the club to have me going into that next again season yeah. off the back of the success that we had that I could potentially leave or speak to clubs within a few months. It just obviously come January, I would have been a free Bosman. And back then, free Bosmans were... Were, were no as, um, as usual as they are now. Do you know what I mean? A free Bosnia for me, potentially going on and winning another, well, the club did. They, they won the double again the next again year um, when I was obviously at Middlesbrough. But it's a double-barrel question, this for me, Jack, because I, even though Middlesbrough, I felt ruined my career um, for where I'd kind of went, and I'm not blaming Middlesbrough for that. I don't want to be personal with Middlesbrough because they're a great club. I just never... Yeah. It's hard not to look back in a bit of resentment for for playing with a broken leg and going through the the, the tough times that I went through and, and building up over a journey, Coventry, the disappointment, to getting to Hibs, to going through all the different moments that you go through in your career, to get to Middlesbrough as a kind of Scotland international that had won trophies up in Scotland and feeling like I could do really, really well doing there. I, like, I felt like I was signing for Middlesbrough because they were trying to get to the Premier League. Mm-hmm. I could easily held out and probably got to the Premier League in the summer for it as a free Bosman, do you know what I mean? Because, like saying, I'm in the same bracket, but, you know, your, your McGregor's moved, your Davos moved, your Nazis moved, your Witties moved, your Hutts moved, they all moved to Premier League clubs. Listen, they might easily turn around and say, well, I was rubbish, I, I wasn't good enough to get to the Premier League. I'd like to think I, I could potentially move the same as what these players did. I do think that me moving when I moved, even though I'm going to waffle a bit, has gave me the reputation that I've got with the Rangers fans because I probably moved at the right time, that the club got their money back, Um there was no disgruntlement apart from I'd like to think I'd like to hope fans were disappointed that I was leaving. But the harsh reality is for me, Jack, the only way I can look back and think is at 26, 27 when I moved, even though it set me up for life really financially, and um, which was, was a hard decision to make because it wasn't as if I wasn't set up for life being a Rangers player. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was I've never been a greedy person when it comes to money. I've always as I played for Hibs for free, do you know what I mean? It's like people yeah. might say that you're greedy, but I'd, I'd like to think that people that know me when it comes to money, I'm 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 really forthcoming and trying to help people. Do you know what I mean? When it comes to family, etc. Do you know what I mean? I'd always give my last, really, but um, it doesn't then mean that I didn't want to get paid what I feel as though I deserve. Um, mm. But it was it was a difficult one because it was I'd had two ACL injuries. I'd hurt my knee at 19. I'd hurt my knee at 23 at Rangers. I'd recovered to to go on and get back in the team and and, and play at the level that I was playing at. To then no have the opportunity to sign a new contract at the club. Um, and probably very few people within the club, Walter might have been one of them, um, knowing that, that the club was going to go to where the club was going to go to. It was, I look back and think, I don't mean for Rangers, I just look back and think for my personal situation, it was a real 
um, unlucky situation to be in because probably in normal circumstances I would have signed a new contract and I could have potentially stayed at the club for a long time and you just don't know how your career would have panned out but instead um, I know a couple of young players myself, Davos, Nazis there was a list that was kind of going around um, that some of the players were available and obviously Nazi had two years left in his deal because I had signed before all of them but he had two years left in his deal Davos had two years left in his deal so the club were probably at their most vulnerable with me as an individual without me knowing that at that given time um, so when I look back and think of all the different scenarios and all the different um, avenues that why that deal actually took place, it, it just it, it <laughs> something that I didn't quite kick on for there, Jacko. And I didn't think, I didn't think that that, or I don't think, sorry, that anyone could be fair enough and think that it was because I didn't have the talent to go down there and do well. No. Mm-hmm. And then it's just a, a, an absolute disastrous run of injury issues, isn't it? And bad luck and... It's just that it was horrendous. I mean, it was not one where you, you I know that you they, they failed to diagnose a broken leg and you played on in a broken leg, but it was not one then when you fell off a treadmill and did more damage. Or it was just that, that was that was I thought I'd recovered. Um, and obviously, I, I'd spoke to you, didn't I, like, quite early on, um, mm-hmm. about like potentially suing the club. You remember mm-hmm. that, yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously, like me being me, and I'd like to think it backs up that I wasn't driven by money. I was driven by success as a player. Um, so I still had like three years left on my contract when I was going through the hard time with the club. I'd, I'd phoned Stuart Colley, who's somebody that I hold close to my heart as well, massive respect for him, who was the physio at Rangers, who was friendly with the physio at Middlesbrough. So it, it actually took me a lot of plucking up courage to phone him because I wouldn't want to do anything behind anyone's back. No. It's, it's not how I work. So I'd phoned Stuart for a wee bit of advice, knowing that he was very friendly with Grant. And he said, listen, Tom, you're doing the right thing. You're, you're, you're as tough as old boots. Like, there has to be something wrong with your leg. Like, I think Grant will be comfortable if, if they skin a few chappies door and say, listen, we're at loggerheads, blah, blah, blah. Could I get a, could I get a second opinion? Because obviously the opinion I was getting was off the same guy all the time. Mm-hmm. Ask for a second opinion. So eventually, obviously, I said I've got a good relationship with Mr. Williams, who obviously top specialist in London, even though he's near-renowned. Um, would it be possible if we could, if you could ask the club if we could, if you could sanction us going to London and getting a second opinion? And that's that's how it kind of stemmed, really. Um, but to to, to that's tell that's them, you that you'd been playing in a broken leg, effectively. Well, that's so Mr. Williams could diagnose through the scans that I'd had um, at the local GP um, or the local specialist in Darlington, um, a South African guy. Um, he could he could work out and look at the scans, obviously with a better microscope, effectively, yeah. or a better eye or a more educated eye, and tell me exactly when I had broke my leg and exactly the games that I had played, looking at the dates, etc., when I was fit, no fit, when I come off, when I didn't come off. Um, he could look at all them, and, and and he couldn't believe that I'd played with a broken leg. I mean, um, games so I think. I think I played 19 games that, that year, Jack, when I broke it in the second game at Leicester. My debut was against Ipswich. So I think it, over the course, um, there was at least at least a dozen to 15 games that I'd effectively played with a broken leg. I mean. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And then what, what was the story with the treadmill? Was that when you are trying to come back well, from I, that? I was trying to get fit for pre-season. And I, I used to obviously, I could go quite fast on the treadmill, like obviously you'd like to think. I was being kind of professionals and I'd... I had actually played at the end of the season. I felt great. My weight was good. I was fit. I was strong. I felt good. I felt like I was going to get the crack. That's why I hadn't even thought about like falling out of the club or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just wanted to play football. Tony yeah. had come in as manager. Of, obviously, I'd had a disappointment season with him, but I crafted. He actually said to me pre-season, he's like, look at the shape he is well. Because obviously, when I first seen him on the first day of pre-season, then it his second season, 
because uh, obviously striking had left in, in November. So we'd done mm-hmm. that whole season. It had been a stop-start from one for me up and doing um, on and off, obviously no knowing because the specialist was telling me I was fine. So you start to doubt yourself. You start to question yourself. Think if you're if you're if you're going a bit soft in your old age, um, and then obviously come the summer, you know what I was like. We win a trophy on Saturday. I was in the gym on a Monday to try and get better, to try and get fit, to go back and be even better the next game pre-season. So I had um, I had been running on the treadmill in the house. That we're still in the house just to this day. Um, so we'd obviously come back up the road from Middlesbrough for our summer holidays. And uh, when you're running, obviously really fast on the treadmill, everybody will know you've got the kind of the strip at the side where obviously the treadmill goes round. Then I used to just put my hands on the bars and jump my feet when I was doing my four minutes. I'm doing, literally doing it now. And as I've landed, for whatever reason, the speed of the treadmill, the gravitation going through, my heels obviously caught a wee bit, and I've just I've just went like that. And just I've landed, I'm like, ah. and I got that sharp pain that I'd had previous times mm-hmm. when I'd obviously hurt it in games thinking that I was soft obviously because that was the kind of narrative that was getting put back to me oh, we're going to see the specialist really um, so I was questioning myself and like just at my end of my tether really and then obviously I phoned the physio and said listen I've just been doing my four minute runs we're due to go back this was my last set as well in the summer I was going to have the day off the next again day and we were due to report back the next again day and he said, uh, how do you mean? I said, honestly, Moz, it's exactly, Chris Mosley was a physio. I said, it's exactly the same pain. I was lying on my bed and she's like, no way. I was like, aye. I just, I, it was like, as I've landed my feet flat, it was as if like my heel was slightly turned in and mm-hmm. the speed of the treadmill was just jarred and it's obviously moved my ankle a wee because I, I got an operation on my ankle as well to see if the rotation of my ankle was the reason why it was breaking because it didn't know, obviously. So they opened my ankle up when I eventually got it fixed to put a plate on it. But these were obviously all times that we were, it was an unknown what was going on. Because um, obviously I just thought I was going soft, so I was extra hard, demented to try and work yeah. even harder to make sure I was the fast. And um, I ended up jumping in the car. We had obviously Jackson at the time, um, who was obviously only a nipper. So I jumped in the car. She drove me all the way down to Darlington. I went in. I got a wheelchair into the um, into the hospital. I got an X-ray, and the woman said to me uh, when I went in, I was like, I think I broke my leg. She was like, looking at me. She's like, you can't broke your leg. I said, I think I broke my leg. She's like, you can't be like, you're being in mere pain. I said, it's agony like. I says, but it's not that. I've had it before. Mm-hmm. I know what the pain is. You get accustomed to it. And she's like, no, nah, you can't broke your leg. So she's like, right, we'll get you x-rayed anyway, blah, blah, blah. So I got x-rayed. Obviously, she's come back. And I remember seeing her face. She's like, you've got a broken leg. She's like, I can't believe that you've got a broken leg. And I was like, I just knew. you got Sorry. to tell you. That was it. like, that was at stupid o'clock in the morning. Because it was like late, no late at night, but late evening by the time I'd done it. Mm-hmm. I then had to obviously pack a car, organise for Callie's mum and dad to come and watch the nipper to drop Jackson off. She took me straight down to, to Darlington, which is obviously a three, three and a half hour drive anyway. Got x-rayed at, at I want to say, approaching midnight. So about the time, you know what it's like, it's A&E. Yeah. Yeah, about the time you get x-rayed and time somebody comes and tells you you're sitting about Fraser. It was yon time in the morning. And then I went in that next again day and, and at the training centre, obviously, because we went back to the house down in, in uh, North Allerton. And uh, I remember Morgan coming and he was like, like obviously suicidal because I was hopefully going to be a big part of his plans. Mm-hmm. But it was like, I just couldn't believe how much bad luck I could have suffered with. Oh, mate, it was, it was just wretched, the whole thing, wasn't it? Just wretched. It was, it was tough. Like, it was, and I, I think it's hard when people hopefully hear your story that it's, I genuinely mean it for the heart, like a brilliant club and I was desperate to do well down there. I felt I could have done well, but I also understand, like, my other fans, I'll see you as a kind of expensive dud as such, but it's a um, brilliant training facility, brilliant way of living. I loved it down there, especially after you go through the magnitude and the, the microscope that you put under as an old firm player. I was just I was just desperate to do well. Yeah. Uh, and I felt like I, I, I should have done well and I could have done well, but 
It's, um, and I know Shuda Kudu, that's what Ian Durant used to say to me all the time, the Shuda Kudu superstar. Kevin, we've now been chatting for about an hour and a half, we're not going to keep you too much longer. Um, and we know that you can back up the road, you played with Dundee, you went back to Hibs, as you said, you even played initially for nothing with Hibs, uh, for Hibs. Um, but you did move on into management and you had real success at Kelty Hearts and for a while like you uh, that looked as if you know that was going to be like a stellar managerial career and you surprised everybody I think by having won the league with them that you left and you've not been back as a manager since um, what's going on there what, talk us through your sort of mindset at the time when you left Kelty were you thinking that you were going to get something else and it never panned out, or or what happened? No, nah, not really, David. We, we we only really went to speak to the clubs that that done it in the right channels. Um, we obviously we got approached by Kilmarnock um, when um, Tommy Wright got sacked. It was big budget Premier League club in the Championship. Uh, Mark Rofer obviously having an unbelievable season under Dick Campbell, but we backed ourselves. I think still 17, 18, 19 games to go that we could hopefully topple a part-time team to get promoted. Um, so it was a job that interested us. Um, it was it was, uh, it was was the same when Rafe kind of come calling, asked for permission to speak. So we obviously still at Kelty by that time. Um, we, we went to speak to them. And it's it's not that we thought we were... I'd like to think it, wasn't it, that we thought we were, we were too big for our boots or we were better than we, we, we were. We'd, we'd loved every minute at Kelty. It was, it was a calculated risk me leaving the role that I was at Rangers, um, which had... Different variables within it, really, to, to, to what the to what the job looked like with me staying in Edinburgh, travelling every day, etc., etc., um, and obviously then same again working in a in a curriculum and and a structure for somebody above you to, to basically you know tell you what to do, etc. Do you know what I mean? It's, it can sometimes academies can be difficult depending on what club you're at. So I felt as though I'd given a, a good amount of time to, to to have my journey, to learn my trade, to see what I was good at, what I wasn't good at. The, the, the Kelty one having a, a good budget. And a good good opportunity to continue doing my academy. It just it felt right eventually when I'd seek all the advice that I wanted to, to seek of people that um, that I obviously respect. I spoke to Scotties, I spoke to Stephen, um, I'd spoke to Barry, and Barry was actually the last person I spoke to. One of my, my gut was telling me that I was going to take it. Um, obviously, you naturally speak to a couple of your pals and your dad, etc. And obviously, Jordy was was going to be coming with me, so he was he was a big factor in the advice that obviously went and seek to see if he thought if I thought. He thought we were ready to obviously go and have a crack at it and if it would help us get to where we want to get to. So you do all these things, Davy, really. And and once you take that risk, um, albeit a risk for Kelty as well, because you're, you're unknown really when, when these clubs hire you, to have the season that we had um, and build up the reputation that we built up was, I suppose it's, I've not got an answer why we went in the next couple of days. I think it was the last day in May that we, we resigned for Kelty that we went 12 months with no having another opportunity or another chance to to try and showcase our talent or try and build something different at a different club. And it's I suppose from my perspective it's a bit frustrating when you when you go and speak to Rafe and, and within half hour they offer you the job and you go and speak to, to Kelly and the, the feedback that you get back was was really humbling and, and obviously just missed out to, to Kenny uh, Derek McInnes who had who had been a manager for, for yeah. 10, 12 years prior to that. You know what I mean? A really good stint at St Johnson, a brilliant stint up at Aberdeen, somebody that's well respected within the game that's that's got a great pedigree um, at the top level really. So for for me, as a kind of young pretender, being able to compete with Derek's, etc., even though I didn't like coming second, you still have to understand different scenarios. Um, 
and I was, I was, and, and I wasn't that disappointed. You know, we get the Kelly job in the respects. I love my job at Kelly. I'd committed to the players. I never missed one training session. Um, I gave up money to go and work for BT um, when I when I could when I didn't need to. I could have changed the schedule whatever way I wanted to minute. But what I've always done is do things that I think is right for the club, and we, that's what we've done. Um, so I suppose um, without saying that I'm desperate for a job because I've kind of resign myself as an individual like if one comes up and somebody values what we do and gives us the opportunity then I'll be grateful for it but if, if that opportunity doesn't arise I'm not so sure it's right for me as an individual to get too downhearted about it because I've got two wonderful kids I've got two brilliant dogs I've had a good career I've I've, I've got a brilliant academy that I'm really proud of um, and I, I, I can't get too downbeat Davey really about like not getting opportunities that you maybe some because listen some people feel as though we didn't deserve them but we'd like to think um, the journey that we've done so far that, that we thought we might have got a different opportunity. That didn't mean we left Kelty for that opportunity, David. The Kelty thing was as another can of worms where we felt as though we couldn't have done any more. I feel as though we got really lucky. I think we overachieved at Kelty for what we got. You know, fifth round of the Scottish Cup, third in the Premier Sports Cup, winning the league in May, uh, March, sorry. It, do, it just doesn't happen, really. Um, yeah. Bearing in mind, we knocked out the cup, double cup holders. We didn't just knock out other teams round about us or, or maybe get the scalp of a championship club. We were a League 2 club at the time, albeit they're a League 1 team. But to, to go to extra time and beat St. Johnson, albeit St. Johnson, listen, I'm not naive, we're going on a bad run at the time. Callum and Stevie were under a bit of pressure. The fans were disgruntled. I think they'd lost seven or eight games in the bounce or whatever before we beat them. But for us to beat a Premier League team, um, a League 2 team, part-time team, to beat a Premier League team, um, was, in my opinion, was, a, was an unbelievable achievement for, for, for the club and the group of players. Um, I didn't mean that for me and Jordi, I just mean for, for just what, what how we managed to help. You naturally get credit because you're the manager, David, but the, the, the players deserve all the, the credit. But for us to do what we've done at Kelly, it does, it feels a wee bit disappointment, uh, disappointing, I suppose, without feeling sorry for ourselves, because I'm not. It just, you just naturally get a bit disappointed that you didn't feel as though you maybe then the next door or the next opportunity maybe doesn't come around that you would, you would like it. Sometimes you just need to be patient, Tom. You should know that by now. <laughs> well, 12 months of patience, Jacko, is, I'd like to think that means I must have patience to a saint, but it's, <laughs> it is, it's, it's tough and it's... I, I'm due to finish my pro licence at the end of June, which I, I missed last year because I just needed a break. My group went to Slovakia last year and, and I decided when we were on a summer holiday we were due to start pre-season, same again. Putting Kelly first, we were due to start back, I think, on the 18th. The pro licence went away on the 17th. I asked for a bit extra special dispensation really to to miss it or to see if I could do something different, but they're not that forthcoming and doing that. So I need to go on the trip this year. I just I, I didn't believe that a manager should be missing the first day of pre-season when you're getting when you're getting things changed. Because when I was on the pro license, I was a B team manager at Rangers. The, the game's massively important, of course they are. And I'm not saying oh you get time away from Rangers, that means you can't take it for Kelly. But when you're at Rangers, even though you're the head coach of the B team, you're playing bounce games and friendlies and that is it's the club are there to obviously support you to try and obviously get but I think when you're the manager, it's a, it just looks a wee bit different, in my opinion. Yeah. So these are the yeah. things. Tell me this, Tom, will probably wrap up on this, but I think it's fair to say that you grew a little bit frustrated when you were at the uh, the Rangers Academy because maybe the, the leadership structure, whatever. There have been, obviously, um, there has been a major change to that. Um, with Craig Mulholland no longer there as Academy Director, has there been a conversation? Is it something you would welcome? Would you go back in a, in a role like that, having been a manager? Is there a role for you there? Because and I, I, I know for a fact you were extremely well thought of as a coach in there. The kids loved it. 
the the senior players thought you were you were doing a tremendous job in there. It seems like a hell of a loss for Rangers, and now you're just sitting there doing podcasts with us. Shouldn't you be in there doing that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose it's. I've I've spoke to James kind of off the cuff, really, Jack. And I've, I've spoke to Mick, so it's I'm not the type of person person that would ask for an opportunity, really. I'm, mm-hmm. Not because I'm too big and too too proud. It's everybody I'm pretty sure can pick up the phone to you, and and if they wanted to have a conversation, and there was a there was a, a role or an opportunity within the club that they thought I could I could benefit the club. Listen, there's millions and millions and millions of people that that would would love a job and an opportunity. I'm and I'm, I'm not any more deserving than anyone else. Um, and and I, I genuinely mean that. It's Rangers should only ever want the best coaches and yeah. and the best people available at that given time. That's how I that's how I view the club really. Um the the, the academies are difficult to work in, Jacko, because us ex players probably have big opinions and 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 you might have different standards for different people. It doesn't mean that my standards are better and theirs are rubbish. I didn't mean that to be derogatory, but the harsh reality is when you when you put yourself in an academy, you're probably working off somebody else's ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, you're probably working off somebody else's curriculum. You're probably working off somebody else's decisions. Not if you're uh, heading the academy, Tom. For the head of it, aye, aye. Listen, Craig, no, I'm saying not, not if you're head of the academy. Oh, well, aye, aye, no, aye, exactly. So it's when you, I suppose, once you've been, and I was always humble to do it. I understand that when I when I took the role, Jacko, but you obviously try and implement your things. You, the the bigger you grow in the academy, the further you get up the tree. You you get involved in more conversations that are that are trying to. Um, create different parts within the academy to be more successful to try and help the players put the provision that is in place for them to try and make it as best as it possibly can be um, that can be bringing extra staff in etc 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 it can be extra training it can be less training whatever it may be do you know what I mean like all these conversations that you have you as a part-time staff you probably didn't have any say in that and you didn't get any opportunities you mm-hmm. become full-time and you get into the senior academy you obviously get, get exposed to more of these opportunities to maybe say your piece but I, I think I think if you have a, a, a vision of where you want to get to, and listen, I, I would I would take a head of academy job tomorrow, Jacko, because I would mm. get to feel as though I get to implement some of the, the the ideas that we have within my own academy that I think is 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 doing a relatively good job. I think if you ask the kids that come to KTA, um, they kind of really enjoy what me and Jordy put on for them. Um, I think to like a Leon King, um, who's you know played six Champions League games this year, traveling all the way from Glasgow. To Edinburgh to, to work with us through the close season, even though he doesn't do it now, but he done it when he was obviously um, aspiring to get to where he wanted to get to. Even though I know he still got aspirations, but I think like we had to be doing something right, Jacko. Do you know what I mean? Like there has yeah. to be some sort of like you'd, I'm not wanting a pat in the back for it. I just if I'd been sacked and I'd, I'd be I'd, the role had been where I had been and we'd had a bit of disappointment and a setback. But by the way, which will come? I think it's a wee bit harder when the setbacks not come yet, and you've 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 been relatively successful that you just didn't you just don't know how good you can be or where you could go or or as you say how how much you could potentially help um, whether it's in an academy whether it's um, whether it's an odd job whether it's I don't know how that looks whether it's abroad whether it's somewhere else whether it's down south it's I suppose until you you get that opportunity um, you, you feel a wee bit unknown, but when you see other people potentially getting other opportunities off the fact they maybe not doing so well, it's it's, it's human nature to think that you get you get a wee bit dis- disappointed, a wee bit frustrated with with, um, with how the system works. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> I don't think there's any doubt, Kevin, that you'll be back sooner rather than later in some capacity. Um, um, and listen, it's been an absolutely brilliant hour and a bit chatting away to you about your career. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. Um, just certainly wish you the best 
the in the future with it. Aye, thanks, lads. Listen, any time Jacko knows that. Any time he's, I love having a waffle. You know, I'm passionate. I'm about this. So <laughs> if I can help in any way, I'm great. If I've if I'm surplus to requirements and I just need to walk the dogs every day, then so be it. No, you're in, you're, you're in, the, you're in the team sheet, Tom. Don't worry about that. You can get stripped down, put Barry shorts on. <laughs>